you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good you turn it for good you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good you turn it for good you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good you turn it for good you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good you turn it for good i'm gonna see a victory
Jesus, the only one who could ever sing. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
where my heart becomes sweet and my shame is undone. Your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come plug this place and fill the
Um, now, we're going to pray with her uh, and for her uh, when we get closer to May, her launch date on the 24th. But I'm just going to ask you to extend your hands this morning, and let's pray for her right now, and let's rejoice with what God's doing already in her and through her. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, Father, we thank you so much for those whom you call you enable. And Father, this is the evidence of your enablement. You said you supply for the need according to your riches in yourself. And look what you've done. You've supplied so that you can enable. And, and with the enablement also comes the anointing for Caitlin to be a part of Next Step, to go to Boston this summer, and to affect the lives of people around the, the area, Father, through the Boys and Girls Club for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, and Father, greater than what the pandemic was in 2020, would you please do a, a new thing, pour out your spirit upon all flesh, and just blanket Boston, Father, and blanket this whole country, Lord, this summer with your people doing outreaches, Lord. Father, I pray right now that as you are, are preparing the way, that you would start plowing the hearts and the minds of the people who are there right now. And, and right now, maybe they don't know they're going to be impacted and intersected by your Holy Spirit this summer. But Father, right now, would you just put them in, in, in places, positions, and things like that? Would you continue to guide Caitlin and the team that's going to make up for our next step, Lord? Guide and direct their steps, Father. You say you guide and direct the steps of the righteous. They are ordered by you. And that you open doors that nobody can shut. Father, would you throw the door open wide in the Boston community this summer so that many teens, many young adults, many people can come to faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pour out your spirit upon all flesh, Father, and, and use Caitlin, Lord Jesus, and use the Next Step team to turn Boston right side up the way it's supposed to be, Father, and pour out your spirit upon all flesh. We thank you so much, Father, this morning for how you've prepared the way. We're excited about how you're going to continue to keep making a way and how you're going to use Caitlin, the rest of the team, to change people's lives every day and for all of eternity in Jesus' name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's give Caitlin, let's give God a big round of applause again. Thank you, ladies. Excellent. Well, good morning. Welcome to you joining us in person. Welcome to you joining us online. Uh, for those of you who might be visiting you are at New Promise Church, in case you weren't sure where you were. And I'm Rory Gruders. I get to be the senior pastor here at New Promise. And we are just so thrilled that you are with us in person or online uh, to worship the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth. And it's our heart's prayer that you feel the love of God in Jesus Christ, not just through the music, not just through the message, but through the people that are around you this morning. And I think as much as there's a, a sweet sun that's out in the sky this morning, uh, not warming things up too much because it was three degrees when I drove here this morning, but it is beautiful outside and the sun is illuminating every, everything outside. There is a sweet presence of God's Holy Spirit in this place this morning, warming up lives and illuminating lives. Amen? Amen. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. As we turn towards God's Word, you can uh, take your Bibles, and we're going to pick up in the Noah story, so you can turn to Genesis 7 and 8. Now, there's not going to be an actual scripture to, that we're going to dive into this morning, but you can follow along in the message in Genesis 7 and 8 this morning. As you're doing that, I just want to pray God's blessing on the Word this morning. Amen. 
Heavenly Father, you said your word never comes back void. So Father, send out your word right now, Lord Jesus, to us with a crystal clear clarion call this morning, Father, that calls us, equips us, and enables us to be the people that you've called us to be and do the things you've called us to do. Father, as, as we look into Noah's life again, again, help us to find our footing, our bearings, and our balance as to how we are the Noahs around us that people see today, Lord Jesus. Father, bless my lips to preach, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to receive everything that you have for us right now. We pray this, Lord, in your name. And everybody said... Amen and amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started uh, this study in Noah because we wanted to find our footing, find our bearings and our balance as Christians today in the world we live in because it says that Noah was a righteous man. He lived in a faithful relationship with God among the people of his time, and that's what we want to be. We want to be people. We are righteous in Jesus Christ. We want to live in a faithful and faith-filled relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we are certainly among the people of our times. Two weeks ago, we started this series with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, where he talked about the end times will be like as in the days of Noah. And we said if you look around the world today, you can see that the world on an escalating scale is more and more going to, tracking towards the days of Noah. You say, what were the days of Noah like? You got to go back to Genesis chapter 6, and you got to see the world through God's eyes, where God said every inclination, every thought of every person was wicked, evil, violent, corrupt, and sinful all of the time. And if you look at the world today, you look on the news, you look at things that are going on, not just in the, this last few months or this last year or two years, but you can go back a lot of years, you can see on an escalating scale how the world, every society, how the world has become more corrupt, more evil, more wicked, more sinful, and certainly more violent um, than, than even what I remember, you know, growing up as a kid and stuff. So we are on a sliding, escalating scale towards the days of Noah. And in fact, in, in Jesus' words, I think we are in the days of Noah right now. I don't think we have to wait to get there. I think we're there. You're saying, Pastor, are we in the end times? Yes, we are in the end times. That's according to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. The end times began roughly around 70 AD, and they span towards today. And you say, Pastor, you look at the world around us right now. If we are in the end times, and we've been in the end times for so long, could you say that we are in the last hours? I don't know. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Only God in heaven knows. But I just know if you look around at the world around us today, it is very much like Jesus said. It is very much like as in the days of Noah, where God said the world was wicked, evil, violent, corrupt, and sinful all the time. Every inclination, every thought of man was like that, except for a guy named Noah and his family. And this is where we left off the story last week. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, had done everything that God had called him to do. He had done everything that God told him to do. And what did God tell him to do? Well, last week we looked at how he built an ark because God told him to build an ark. And we looked at the size and we looked at the dimensions, how it was about half the length of the Titanic and, and how... 
uh, the three possible locations that it came to, to rest at on the mountain range of Ararat from northwest Iran to the two locations up, uh, up in the mountain of Ararat, about the 14,000 foot level, or down in the wash basin, the foothills of Mount Ararat there. The three possible locations based on the, the evidence that's left there from the, the centuries of decomposition and decay in the petrified rock and all of that stuff. And all of that stuff is really, really fascinating. It really is. I hope you enjoyed last week as much as I did, because I, I, I could so be an archaeologist. I really could. I, I just love history and discovering history and, and everything else like that. But if that's all Noah's story to you is about, you're missing the point of Noah's story. The story of Noah and the ark really isn't about the ark. The ark was just a vehicle. It was just a thing God told Noah to build. No, the, the story of Noah and the ark is a story about God's grace before God's judgment. Because God's grace always comes before God's judgment. You look throughout the Bible when God has done things either on a global scale or on a local scale, like with Moses and Israel in Exodus 12, God has always had a time of grace, a time of salvation before his judgment comes. And the reason he does that is because our God is a gracious, loving, merciful God. He wants to have his days of grace before judgment because he wants to help people avoid his judgment. If you go into 2 Peter, you'll, you'll read where God doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because our God is a gracious, kind, loving, merciful God. He always has days of grace before his judgment comes, and that's what we're living in right now. We're living in the days of grace, of God's grace, just like Noah was back in his day. And what I want to talk about this week like last week we talked about the ark. What I want to talk about this week, though, is I want to talk about us being committed to the process of continuing during the days of grace. I want to be committed. I want to talk about being committed to the process of continuing like Noah was from Genesis 6 to 8 over those 120 to 121 years of Noah's life. Noah didn't give up. God used Noah to save the human race and to save a whole bunch of animals in his ark because God is a gracious, kind, merciful, and loving God. And Noah was committed to the process of not giving up during the days of God's grace, which comes before God's judgment. Let's talk about grace for a second. Let's talk about what grace is. Grace comes from the Greek root word cherish. C-H-A-R-I-S. From the word cherish in Greek, we get three English words. We get grace, favor, and charity. Charity actually sounds the most like the Greek, the Greek word charis. But we get grace, favor, and charity. Charity and grace is basically summed up in the word favor. Favor is doing someone for something that they can't do for themselves. Now, we casually use that word favor a lot differently. We think of it in, in the sense of, well, thank you for doing me a favor. I could have done it for myself, but thank you that you did it. Like, thank you for doing the laundry. I could have done the laundry myself, but thank you that you did it. I could have washed the dishes or taken out the garbage, but thank you that you did it. You know, that type of thing. That's how we use the word favor. But that's really not the meaning of the word favor, charity, grace in the Greek. 
In the Greek, it means to do something for someone that they absolutely cannot do for themselves. They could never, ever do it for themselves. That's God's grace. That's God's charity. That's God doing us a favor, doing something that we literally could not do ever for ourselves. Now, decades ago, when I was in my early 20s, I was leaving uh, the church that I was attending at the time. It was a sunny Sunday morning. I think it was May or June, July, something like that. It was a beautiful day, and, and service had just gotten done and everything, and I was, I was driving. I don't know if I was driving home or where I was driving, but I remember I was going down 44th Street in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and, and I crested the hill and came down, and, and I saw the, the car, a car that was on the side of the road, and, and you could tell it had a flat tire. The left rear was flat, and uh, the lady was standing kind of on the curb on the other side of the car, and she was just kind of like looking around, looking distressed. Well, the way God wired me, I, I kind of slowed down, noticed the situation, and I kind of pulled over in front of her car, and I put my flashers on. She had her flashers on. And then I walked back uh, on the sidewalk to her, and I said, ma'am, is everything okay? And you know, I kind of kept my distance a little bit because I didn't want to freak her out or anything. And she said, well, I, I, have a, I got a flat tire. Now, this was before the days of cell phones. This is how far back this goes. And so she's like, I, I, I've got a flat tire. And, and she goes, I don't belong to an auto club, and I, I, just, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, well, do you have a spare in, in the trunk, and do you have a jack and stuff? I said, because I can change a tire. That's no big deal. And she goes, oh, really, would you? And she started getting appreciative. She goes, I don't know. And I said, well, pop the, the trunk open, and let's see. And sure enough, she had one of those old bumper jacks, and she had a lug wrench, and she had a an actual tire, not one of those little, you know, 50-miler jobs we have today. She had an actual tire. And, and she goes, I don't even know if it's got air in it or anything. I said, well, we'll find out when we, when we put it on the car and put weight on it and stuff. And so I, I went around, and while cars were, were going by and, and, and everything, I undid the lugs, and I jacked up the car, and I took off the tire, and I put on the new tire, and I changed the whole thing. She stood at, by, the, um, by the trunk on the street while I was doing the, the work and everything, and she was talking to me, and we were chit-chatting back and forth, and she said, I just want to thank you so much for doing this. I could have never done this myself. She goes, I don't know how to change a tire. And she goes, I thank you so much for doing this. Now, at the time, I didn't really think too much of it. I just said, well, thank you, ma'am. That's all gracious and everything. And she offered to pay me, and I said, you don't need to pay me or anything. I said, but, you know, just, you know, everything was fine. I, I tightened the, the lugs down, everything. I went on my way, and she, or she went on her way, and then I went on my way, that type of thing. And it didn't occur to me then, but, but years later, as I started studying the word grace, favor, charity in the Greek, this illustration kind of came back to my mind, that phrase that she said, thank you, I could have never done this myself. And I think to myself, that's exactly the position we are in with God. God pulled over and changed our flat tire. Something that we could never do for ourselves. He came and he atoned for our sins. Something we could never do for ourselves. He saved our lives eternally from hell to heaven in Jesus Christ. Something we could never ever do for ourselves. That is God doing us the biggest favor we've ever had anybody ever do in our lives. That is God's grace. And those are the days that we're still living in. We're still living in the days of God wanting to do favors, the biggest favors for anybody and everybody that anyone could ever have done in their lives. He's still, we're still living in the days where he wants to atone for people's sins in the blood of Jesus Christ and save them from his coming judgment during these days of grace because our God is a gracious God. Our God is a loving God. Our God is a faithful God. And he wants to do favors 
for people. Just like he did in the days of Noah. He did a favor for Noah and his family and the animals, saving them out of the, uh, out of the flood, before the flood, and then when the flood of his judgment came flooding in, that type of thing, as he did it in Noah's days, he's still doing that through us today. You see, what Noah was to the ark, Jesus is to the church. And we kind of are a little bit to the ark and to Jesus. Because we're extensions of Jesus. You see, Noah built the ark. The ark was the vehicle of salvation in the Old Testament. Jesus came in the New Testament. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church in Jesus is the vehicle of salvation. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. We are in Jesus Christ. Jesus is kind of both Noah and the ark. We are the ark and kind of like Noah because we are extensions of Jesus Christ. Which is to say we are the Noah people see today We are the Jesus that people see today Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5 It says that we are Christ's ambassadors And God is making his appeal through us For people to be reconciled to him Through faith in Jesus Christ So we're kind of the Noahs That people see today we are extensions of Jesus Christ. We are the Noahs that people see. And I got to thinking that like Noah, back in the Old Testament, there's a lot of work to be done during the days of grace. There's a lot of hard, tedious, repetitive, probably oftentimes thankless work that needs to be done today during God's days of grace, just like back in Noah's days during God's grace of God's days of grace back then. Consider this. Noah had 120 years to build the ark and to gather the animals. 120 years before God's judgment came, which means every day he cut every board. He pounded every nail. And after he got the ark assembled, which remember is half the length of the Titanic, then he had to go out and he had to gather every animal two by two. Now, Scripture says that the little animals and the insects, they came to Noah, but he had to go get the large ones. He had to go get the big ones. I always thought that was flipped around backwards in my head. I always thought, wouldn't it have been better if God would have said, hey, you go gather the insects. I mean, it's easy to gather worms. It's easy to gather ants. It's easy to gather termites. It's easy to gather honeybees. It's easy to gather moths and butterflies and things like that. It's either easy to gather little puppies and kittens, right? And then have God have the big lumbering animals willingly come to Noah, right? The elephant walks up with its trunk wagon. He goes, I'm here. God told me to come here, Noah, and everything, right? But it was just around backwards in Scripture. It says God had the little things willingly come to Noah, but he had to go get the larger animals. He had to go get the rhinos. He had to go get the hippopotamuses. He had to go get the elephants. He had to go get the giraffes. How do you get giraffes, elephants, hippopotamuses, and rhinos to do what you want them to do to get them into the ark? I don't know how you corral big animals like that. I pretty much figure Noah had to figure out how to do it. That's hard work, man. And then there's lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. I mean, what do you do with that too? I mean, it was hard, tedious, repetitive work that Noah did every day for 120 years. And then he had an additional year after that, about 244 days, two-thirds of a year, while he's floating on the ark, waiting and wondering for the next thing to happen. As he's floating at like the 29,020 foot level over Mount Everest. You know, there's, there's a lot of work 
that Noah had to do over 120, 121 years. It was hard work. It was tedious work. It was repetitive work every day. It was probably thankless work, because I don't read anywhere in Scripture where people were thanking Noah for what he was doing. I don't read where the animals came to him and said, thank you, Noah, for saving us. I mean, I don't even read where his, his own son's daughters-in-law and wives was saying, thank you, Noah, for saying. No one thanked Noah in Scripture. It was hard work, repetitive work, tedious work, oftentimes thankless work. My heavens, doesn't that sound like witnessing to you? What more sounds like witnessing to you than Noah's work? Witnessing is hard work. It is tedious work. It is repetitive work. And it is oftentimes thankless work. We're there if we're living as intentional Christians today. We are building relationships with people on purpose, with a purpose, like we're supposed to be doing. We're trying to do all of the right things so we can build honest, genuine relationships of influence with people to influence them to want to come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we're trying to gather people, not to ourselves, but through us to Jesus so we can lead them into accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord, come into the ark of God's salvation, and avoid God's judgment and miss God's judgment. We're the Noah's that they see. I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself that way before, but you need to start thinking about yourself that way. You are the Noah that people see around you with your friends and family members, neighbors and strangers, classmates and co-workers. Every day, every day, being, thank, uh, being faithful to God, preachers of righteousness, living righteousness in your life so people to see as you're living among the people of your day. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, you are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through you for people around you to be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loves you. And he loves using you. And he loves the people around you. And he wants everyone to get saved and come into salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and avoid his judgment. He wants no one to perish. He wants everyone to get saved. And he has called, created, and enabled you and me to be Noah's in our day. People that build relationships and look to gather people to faith in Jesus Christ. But if we're going to be the Noah that people needs us to be, and if we're going to be the Noah people sees, then we need to, like Noah, be committed to the process of continuing. The process of continuing in order to be successful. You know, like I said, Noah, Noah's at this thing for 120 years. It's a long time, man. 120 years he was committed to the process of continuing. I think to myself today, how many people today, they start something, they try something, they fail at something, and then they quit something? They start something, they try it. They realize it's not going the way they thought it would go, so they are basically going, well, I guess I'm failing at this, so I'm going to quit this. The top five things that people try, fail, and quit at are these. Sports, music, writing books, public speaking, and witnessing. I read that this last week. 
Five things that, most common things that, that people try and they quit, they're not committed to the process of continuing, and, which would lead them to success. But they try sports, they go, I'm just not good at sports. They try music, I'm not good at singing, can't play an instrument, they quit. They, they, they try public speaking. That's the number one thing that most people are afraid of is to get up in front of people in public speaking and everything. And believe me, I understand that fear and I share that fear and everything. But a lot of people, they try it. They feel they fail at it, so they quit it. The other thing is writing a book. Apparently, lots of people try writing books and they don't feel it's going well and so they go ahead and they quit. And then, of course, there's witnessing. Witnessing is basically public speaking, but it's just more one-on-one -on -one than it is one to however many are in the room this morning, right? And watching us online. Somebody once said this, I love this quote, that success isn't about the desired end result. Success is about being committed to the process of continuing. Not quitting, not giving up, but committed to continuing until success comes because that's how success comes. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, we're talking about being committed to the process of continuing until success comes, because that's how success comes. And I think to myself, how many people, they quit way too soon? What if Noah would have quit way too soon? What if Noah was not committed to the process of continuing? What if Noah got, say, 70, 85 years into this thing, and he's building this boat and everything, and then all of a sudden he stops one day and he goes, Maybe God didn't speak to me way back when in Genesis chapter 6 to build a boat. You know, there's only three times that God spoke to Noah, that we're told that God spoke to Noah over 121 years. Only three times. First was in chapter 6 where God said, build a boat. Chapter 7, God said, get in the boat. Chapter 8, God said, get out of the boat. There's a whole lot of space there in between those, those chapters. Now, people will some infer, well, God must have kept talking to Noah because that's why Noah kept going. You know what? There's absolutely no scriptural evidence to that whatsoever. All we know is God was a pre or Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was faithful to God, and he, he was righteous with God, and he lived in faith among his people of the day. And God talked to him three times over a span of 120 years. What if Noah was not committed to the process of continuing? What if Noah would have said, 70, 85 years in, maybe I didn't hear from God? Maybe it was a hallucination. I don't know, man. This is so much hard work. No one's saying thank you. It's every day, good night. What if Noah would have went out and said, man, I just can't get these hippos to do what I want them to do. They're not following me. I'm trying my best, but I can't get... How do you... I wonder if God, he ever went to God and said, how do you get the hippos to want to get in the ark? I can't seem to corral them, get them to do what I want them to do. What if Noah would have given up? If Noah would have given up at that point, we wouldn't have had hippopotamuses today. And if we didn't have hippopotamuses today, then who would have hunted and eaten the alligators in the Amazon in Africa? even though I know the Amazon's in South America, but they were also in, in Africa as well. And I love hippopotamuses because I don't like alligators. And hippopotamuses are the predators of the alligators. I like that. I like hippos, man. I'm a happy hippo guy. They're my homies. I like hippos. But if Noah would have given up, if he wasn't committed to the process of continuing of getting those two hippos into the ark, we wouldn't have hippos today. Nobody would be hunting the alligators then, Right? And then I'd be sad, because I don't like alligators, man, but I like hippos. Hippos are cool. What if Thomas Edison 
the creator of the incandescent light bulb created the filament to burn long enough to make the, the first light bulb. What if Thomas Edison, it took him 2,000 tries to get it right. I don't know if you know that or not. What if he would have given up after the hundredth time? What if he would have given up after the thousandth time? Said, I'm trying my best, man. I'm just not getting it right. What if he would have given up after 1,999 times of trying to get it right and he didn't get it right? You say, well, somebody else probably would have, would have created the, the light bulb and stuff. Yeah, maybe a guy named Tesla would have because him, Tesla and Edison created the power grid. I get all that. But we don't know that Tesla would have created the light bulb. We know that Thomas Edison did. We know it took him 2,000 times. And we know he was committed to the process of continuing. That's why he was successful, because he never gave up until he got it right. I, I, I think... Noah, spending 120 years of his life, committed to the process of continuing when he could have given up at any time. And I think Thomas Edison committed to the process of continuing the reason he was successful. I think they're great illustrations for us today because I think as Christians today, there are many times that, that we just feel like quitting. We feel like giving up. We, we, we too, how, how many of you have ever started out trying to witness to somebody and trying to lead somebody to the Lord? Friend, family member, neighbor, and stranger, classmate, or coworker. You try to lead them to the Lord and everything, and you try and you start out and everything, and, and then it's just not working out. It's just not happening. You're not feeling it. They're not feeling it. Whatever. And then you quit. Well, God, I gave it my best, man. I, I tried my best. I, I went to Pastor Rory's small group on Wednesday night where he ta talked about, let me talk to you about Jesus. And, and I was mindful of not, not trying not to do the, the nine mistakes that, that, that uh, Christians usually make when we try and lead people to the Lord. And I tried to do some of the 12 steps that work in there as they were, worked in there appropriately and everything. And I really gave him my best shot, Lord. I really, really did. But I guess you're going to have to use somebody else to lead that person to the Lord because I tried, I failed, and I quit. I gave up. That's a person who's not ever going to succeed because they're not committed to the process of continuing. See, success is not about the desired end result. Success is about being committed to the process of continuing. That's what gets you to success, which is the desired result. You know, you probably heard me talk about a guy named Chris Moore um, at least once or twice here on a Sunday morning. I talked about him again Wednesday night. He's the guy that I grew up with, my childhood best friend, and he's the one that led me to the Lord. And, and we grew up together, and he got saved when I was 15. He got saved four years before I did. I got saved at 19. And, and for four years, he witnessed to me. For four years, he kept telling me how much God loves me and this, that, and the other thing. And he kept trying to lead me to the Lord and everything. And for four years, I kept saying no. And I was in my teenage years, and I know I kind of made it hard on him a couple of times and everything, but he never quit. He never gave up. He was committed to the process of continuing. And so last Wednesday night, when I'm driving home after church, I called him while I was driving, and, and I just said, hey, are you ears burning. I was talking about you again tonight. And so we started catching up on, on what's going on in life and everything else like that. And, and I thanked him again for leading me to the Lord, because I think it's, it's important to thank people who do really good things for you and radically changes your life and everything and your eternity, frankly. And so I asked him this one question. I said, I probably have asked you this before, and I forgot the answer, so I'm just asking you again. Why did you never quit? Why did you never give up? I mean, you kept at me for four years and everything. And, and he goes, well, I was just, that never entered my mind to quit or to give up. He said, we've been friends growing up all of our lives. He said, I didn't want to spend all of eternity in heaven without you. There was no way I was going to ever quit, frankly. He was committed to the process of continuing. And it reminded me how when he got saved at 15, 
He bought a Bible at Zondervan Bookstore, Thompson Chain Reference Bible, for me, wrote a nice little thing in the flyleaf for me, kept it in the box, kept it in the trunk of his car for four years until I got saved. He was committed to the process of continuing. That's why he was successful, if it can be said that way, in leading me to the Lord, just like Noah. Noah was committed to the process of continuing. That's why Noah was successful at that which God called him to. So if we want to be like Noah, if we want to be like my friend Chris, or if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be committed to the process of continuing to lead people to the Lord and not just hope it happens. Because if we're content to just hope people come to faith in Jesus Christ, then we are somewhat like holy hypocrites. We're hoping it happens, but we're not willing to do anything about it. Well, I hope the animals get into the ark, and I hope the ark just builds itself. I really do. But I'm not committed to cutting every board, pounding every nail. I'm not committed to going out and gathering. I'm not, I'm not committed to the, the tireless, thankless, repetitive tedious, hard work that it is to be the Noah that people need us to be in their lives today. No, if, if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be like Noah, if we want to be like my friend Chris, then we need to be committed to the process of continuing to work at leading people to the Lord that are already in our lives. Another thing that occurs to me about Noah and us and everything and the ark is that during the days of, of the process of continuing, there's a lot of time to wait and wonder what's going to happen next. I mean, it, it occurs to me that in Genesis chapter 7, it says Noah spent seven days in the ark before the flood happened. So God calls them to get in the ark. They all get in the ark. God shuts the door, and then they sit down. His wife probably looks at him at some point, well, honey, we, we've been here three hours now. The TV doesn't work, you know. Kids are probably going, Dad, what do we do? We're bored. We've spent 120 years building this thing, gathering the animals. Now what do we do? And I was like, I don't really know. I haven't been here, done this before. God just said, get in the ark. We're in the ark. The ark's closed. We're waiting. Monday goes by. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday goes by. Then all of a sudden, the next Sunday, it thunders for the first time. And then it starts to rain, and the atmosphere breaks apart, the terrarium breaks apart, the ground breaks apart, earthquakes, volcano, volcanoes start happening, springs of the deep come bursting forth. Everything changes after seven days of waiting and wondering what comes next. Genesis 7 and 8, it says that he spent, roughly, they spent two-thirds of a year, 244 days, floating in the ark at about the 29,020-foot level, 20 feet above Mount Everest, if that was the tallest mountain back then. And they're just floating around, looking out the window, and they see beautiful blue sky, probably some sun, and nothing but ocean, nothing but water. And they wonder while they wait, what's going to happen next? How long are we going to be up here? God didn't tell them before it happened. God just said, trust me. Do this. Build the ark. Get in the ark. Now you're waiting in the ark. 
And pretty soon the water starts going down and Noah starts feeling better about things. Noah starts like, good, water's going down, good, because it's been uh, several months now that we've been sitting around up here. I wonder what they were wondering about while they were waiting in the ark. I, I, can you imagine with me that during the turbulent days of everything breaking apart, the upheaval and everything, while the earthquakes and volcanoes are going on, while the ark is, start, ark is starting to rise in, in the water and everything, as it's creaking and shaking and rocking and reeling and everything, I bet you they, I bet you one, at least one time this must have crossed Noah's mind. Did I build a good enough boat? He must have been looking around going, okay, everything's holding. No, no holes, no holes over there, no holes over there. Probably one of his kids came up to him and said, uh, Dad, you know that place that we used duct tape back there? Yeah, it sprung a leak. It's coming through. What do we do? Take off the duct tape. I told you boys to put some pitch on there. God said put pitch. He didn't say use duct tape. And so they go back and they put pitch on there. I bet you there were a couple of times Noah's wondering, did I build a good enough boat? And now they're floating around at the 29,020 foot level. Everything's calm and everything, but now it's several months. They're probably waiting, wondering, and talking about what's it going to be like now that the water's starting to go down? What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? How, is it going to be hot, cold? What, what's, we've never been there, done that before. And then uh, after several weeks, several months, they, they feel the ark bottom out on the ground, right? And they're not floating anymore. Now they're back on the ground. They're looking out and they see that, oh, there's, there's vegetation, there's stuff like that out there, but the water still hasn't totally dried up yet. Another week goes by. God calls to them the third time. God says, I told you to build it. I told you to get in it. Now I'm telling you to get out of it. And the door opens up and Noah and the animals go walking out. And I don't think they saw what we depict in children's Bibles. You ever see a children's Bible where it talks about Genesis 8 and Noah, and it's a cartoon drawing, and Noah and the animals and his family are getting out of the ark, and it's blue sky, and it's sunny, and it's lovely green grass and hills and trees and flowers blooming and everything? That's perfectly appropriate for a children's Bible because you don't want to scare them with what reality probably was. But I think, honestly, it looked a lot more like Hiroshima. After Hiroshima, you know, when we dropped the bomb in 1945, I think it looked a lot more like that initially than what it did in children's Bibles, and this is why. Because when you look at today, after a flood goes through, or after forest fires happen, and you look what's there after those things, you realize that it looks more like Hiroshima than anything else, and it always takes time. Have you ever noticed it takes years for regrowth to happen after forest fires or floods. It's not the next day. It's, it's usually years later that green starts blossoming through the charred remains of the forest fire and things like that. I honestly think that's what it looked like with Noah and his family came out of the ark. And so when they're coming out of the ark, I bet you they were wondering then, okay, what's next? Because we have a depleting food supply. We only have enough food for one quarter of the, the, the rest of this year. What comes next? I think during the days of the process of continuing, I think Noah had a, a lot of time on his hands to wonder while he was waiting. And I think it's perfectly normal for us to wonder about things today. I do. I don't think it's a lack of faith. I think it's part of our faith. I think it's normal to wonder what comes next. It's 2021 now. Last year was 2020. 
pandemic is, is winding down and everything. So what, what comes next? What is salvation going to be like? What's it going to feel like? When is God coming back? What's that going to be like? What, God's, what is God's judgment going to be like? We, we, we're kind of curious, but we don't I want nothing to do with that. But we're kind of wondering, what is that going to be like? What is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ going to feel like after we die and we go through that? What's the rapture of the church going to be like? Are we going to take our clothes with us or get celestial clothes or leave our clothes here? What is all of that going to be like? It's perfectly normal to wonder about all of that stuff. Like Noah, we have never been there, done that before. Wondering about godly things is not a lack of faith. I actually think it's a part of our faith because it means we're thinking about it. We're engaged in it. We're interested in it. We're, we're, we're mulling it over like you would chew on a really good steak before you swallow it. You're going, what's that like? I think that's what we do with God. We wonder about things with God in life. And I think that's perfectly normal to be like. I think Noah and his family were doing that often while they were committed to the process of continuing and that while they were waiting to see what came next. So wondering isn't a sense of lack of faith or doubting. I think wondering is the wonderment part of our faith and trust in God and Jesus Christ. I think it's also normal to sometimes feel alone, abandoned, adrift in life, just kind of floating there, and maybe even forgotten by God, depending upon what's going on in your life. I, I, I think Noah maybe went through that because he was normal and human as much as you and I. And I think there were maybe times that either Noah or his wife or his kids or his, his uh, daughter-in-law, maybe there were times that as they're floating around at the 29,000-foot level and they see nothing but ocean, they're, they're kind of wondering, well, where's God? It's been several months now. Where, where did God go? God, we thought God was telling us to do this. We did this. We're still alive. We're not drowned with all the people, so we must be doing the right thing. But did God forget about me? I just feel aimless. I feel like I'm drifting. There's no power, no propulsion, no purpose, no direction right now in my life. Did, did, did God forget about me? I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian living in a non-Christian world, and I'm facing the natural resistance that comes with those things. Where's God in my life? You know, I don't know about you, but God doesn't talk to me audibly. I remember last week I was talking with a friend of mine, and we were talking about how God talks to us almost audibly. It's those God moments where it's not quite audible in your ears, but man, it's so close. You, it's like audible in your heart, audible in your mind, audible in your spirit, right? Where you have those God moments that are too few and too far between, unfortunately. Where you just know that you know that you know God is speaking to you, right? But life is not full of that every day. I don't think for anyone it is. And I don't think it was with Noah. Like I said, God, we know God only spoke to Noah three times in Genesis over 121 years. That's a lot of silence in between 6, 7, and 8. So sometimes it's understandable to feel like maybe God has forgotten about you, especially in those times where your life feels adrift or you feel buffeted by living as a Christian in a non-Christian world, living in a righteous relationship with God in a very unrighteous world, trying to live at peace with everybody around you in a very violent world, trying to live the right way in a very corrupt world, that type of thing. It's very normal to feel that from time to time with God. It doesn't mean you're a sinner, uh, and it doesn't mean you're lost faith. It means you're absolutely normal. It's normal to feel that way from time to time. But just because of the way we feel doesn't mean that's the way it is. And I'm, I think the same was true with Noah and his family. 
It's normal to, to feel and wonder sometimes, has God forgotten about me? Because I feel like I'm out on my own here. It's normal to feel that way until you read Genesis 8, verse 1, where it says, And God remembered Noah and everybody in the ark with him. When you read that, you've got to remember that God remembers you. And God knows right where you are. We are never alone. We are never abandoned. Even when our life might feel adrift from time to time, we are never forgotten by God. In other words, you might be rising, you might, you might be feeling the turbulent water around you like everything is erupting around you, and you might wonder, if, am I sinking? You might feel like you're sinking, but maybe you're actually rising in the hand of God's plan of God's salvation and whatever it is that you're dealing with in your life that way. Like Noah and like Danny Gokey's song, actually, God's grace got you. God's grace has you. You might feel abandoned, adrift, and alone, but you're never abandoned, adrift, and alone. You might feel sometimes that maybe did God forget about me? God never forgets about you. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're going through, and he knows exactly how he's going to get you through whatever it is you're going through. God's grace has you right in the palm of his hand. You say, how do you know that? Because you're God's Noah. Just like he had Noah back in Genesis, he's got you right where he wants you. He's got you because you're God's Noah in the world of the people around you. Finally, somebody asked me a few years ago, they said, well, why didn't God tell everybody what was about to happen in Genesis 6? Why did God only warn Noah why didn't God warn everybody what was happening in Genesis 6? And part of my answer is this, because, well, one, God is all-knowing. God knows everything before it happens. He knows every decision before it's made. And we know that God's perspective of the world was everybody in the world, except for Noah and his family, was evil, corrupt, violent, sinful, and, and wicked in God's sight. So, in other words, I trust that God knew not every—God knew nobody was going to repent. Nobody was going to turn to God because he knew their backs were already turned, their necks were already hardened and stiffened, and, and he, he's just—I've only got Noah and his family. That's what Scripture says, and we want to be biblically based and simply stay in the confines of what Scripture says. But also, my, part of my answer is this. I think God was warning the world through Noah— because it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So while Noah's building the boat, he's probably telling his neighbors what's coming and why he's building the boat and why he's gathering the animals in. All of that stuff would have been so unique, so out of the ordinary, that Noah probably commanded the attention of his entire neighborhood and community just by the way he was living his life. Righteous with God, faithful to God, while living among the times of his people just like us today. You see, I think God is wanting to use you and me today just like he used Noah back in his day. And I know it's hard because they don't have God's words of warning. They don't know God's word at all. They don't know the opportunities that could be presented to them that God wants to present to them, and that's why God wants to use us today because we are the Noahs that people see today. 
You see, part of being saved and going to heaven, part of our responsibilities and righteousness, is not just the reward of the rapture or the resurrection power of, of Jesus Christ in our lives. Part of the responsibilities of righteousness today is we are the Noah's that people see around us. We are a part, an extension of Jesus Christ's mission to seek, save, and disciple the lost. To build the relationships and gather the people. So let me ask you this, whose Noah are you? Because you are the Noah they see. So whose Noah are you? Your friends, family members, neighbors and strangers, classmates and co-workers. Who are the, who, whose Noah are you? Because you're the Noah they see. You need to be the Noah that they need you to be. And you need to be committed to the process of continuing. Because that's the only way to be successful. Too many times, too many Christians, we start things, we perceive we failed at things, we convince ourselves we failed at it, and we quit. And we quit way too soon. We quit before we have the opportunity to even be successful. If we learn anything from Noah's life and from Scripture this morning, what I want us to take home is this, that as Christians we need to commit to the process of continuing in order to be successful in our God-given call and enablement and mission to seek, save, and disciple the lost by being the Noah's that they need us to be because we are the only Noahs that they see. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light to our path. And today, Father, I hear with a clarion call, you calling out to your church, be committed to the process of continuing, of not quitting, of not giving up. You have not failed. You are simply in process. It doesn't take four hours or four weeks or four days or four months. Sometimes it might take four years. Sometimes it might take 40 years. For Noah, it took 120 years. But people, God's people, who are committed to the process of continuing are successful. Because they do not quit, they do not give up. Those whom God calls, he does enable. He does enable. So Father, help us to be the Noahs that people around our lives need us to be and help us to be the Noahs that they need to see. Give us the right words to say at the right time in the right ways. Get, get, make, make our lives, Father, a spectacle of them. A spectacle to them, rather. Make our lives a spectacle to them that they cannot but notice. And open the door by asking, why are you the way you are? You are so kind, you're so loving, you're so patient. You love God and you seem to love people so much. Why are you the way you are? That's our opportunity to then say, well, let me tell you about Jesus in my life. Let me tell you about the ark of God's salvation. During God's days of grace, before his days of judgment. Father, help us to be that way. Help us to have our eyes right on you. Help us to have our lips to your ears. And help us to, to have our hearts be committed to you and through you by being committed to the process of continuing. There, and there might be some people 
in person right now or watching online that maybe your Holy Spirit right now is reminding them to not quit on whoever they thought they were quitting on. To continue with those people because they are in process. They're not a failure. They're not failing. It's just in process. Give it more time. Keep cutting the boards. Keep pounding the nails. Keep gathering. These are the days of God's grace. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do before God's judgment comes. Help us to be a part, Lord Jesus, of other people's salvation through coming to faith and trust in you, through our witnessing and through relationships with us because we're the you that they see and we're the Noah that they need us to be. Help us to live that way this week, Father. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you and amen. Now, here's what's coming up next at New Promise Church. There will be a food pantry meeting today in the hospitality room with Scott Bainline after second service. One of the pillars of our church is serving. There are six ways that we need your help right now or in the near future. To help serve in the children's ministry team, see Amy Taddeo. To serve on the creative decorative team, see Brittany Everett. To serve with the food pantry team, see Scott Bayline. To serve on the greeters team, see Bill Whitlicka or Kate Bayline. To serve on our Journey to Easter team, see Amy Taddeo. To serve on the audiovisual team, see Jason Dundas. Sign up today in the tables at the lobby. Thank you. Please remember to pray for and give an offering towards Steve and Debbie Cartwright, who are missionaries to the Gila River Reservation in Arizona. Steve is involved in summer Bible camps, Get Victory Guitar Outreach, and SOAR, which stands for Servant, Overcomer, Addiction, and Recovery. Debbie does a youth coffee shop ministry and children's ministry at the church and is also a field treasurer to seven on the AIF leadership team. Thank you to everyone who signed the teacher appreciation cards last week. They were delivered to the teachers, staff, faculty, and bus drivers, and they sincerely appreciated your words of support and encouragement. Next Sunday, Pastor Rory will be concluding his Noah series talking about how God's grace promises us a bright and glorious future. Thank you for being here today at New Promise Church. Have a great and blessed week. Exciting things are happening here at New Promise Church, so I encourage you, if you're interested in helping out with the food pantry, uh, to come to the meeting right after service in the hospitality room with Scott Bailing. I think it's just going to be another awesome ministry here at New Promise. Um, as you guys know, there's a couple of different ways you can give in the offering. Uh, you can go to our website at newpromisechurch.com give. Very easy and effective way to uh, give your tithes and offerings, as well as you can put them in the offering boxes as you leave this morning. As you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says, God loves a cheerful giver. And Malachi 3.10 says, um, to test him in this, the only time in the Bible get God says to test him in this, and just see what will happen. See the, the floodgates open, and you'll be filled with blessings from the Lord. So let's pray as we leave. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your faithfulness in our lives. So thankful for Noah's faithfulness to us. May we be faithful, Lord. May each one of us in this room be faithful every day of our lives, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would just bring people across our paths that don't know you. And as we have heard this morning, Lord, may we be the Noah in their lives, Lord. And we just 
excited to see what's going to happen. So, Lord, I just pray that you bless and keep us, and would you just continue to watch over us this week, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming out this morning. Have a wonderful week.